Welcome to episode two of the Good Lord Bird Companion Podcast. We're back at it again, even though the show in question did not air uh, right. when it was supposed to. Yeah, there's a bit of a mystery. Uh, there's some intrigue. All the promotional material that we saw, which was very little, really uh, none. TBH listed last Sunday, which I think was the 16th, well, February 16th as the premiere date. Uh, the official Showtime website doesn't actually list any date at all. All of those dates that we were getting were from external journalistic sources. And there was even which, one that had a conflicting date that said next month. Which was new though, because we right. didn't see that before. Like I think it, it just had to be like stuff that they were printing from press releases. Sure. But yeah, so there's a little bit of a... A little bit of an issue. Yeah, what's Something's going on? going on over at Showtime. Yeah. So, given that, when do we speculate the next premiere date is going to be? The other thing that I saw, which was, I forget the name of the article, but it basically said the same time, but next month. Okay. Like uh, March 16th. Or, so, who knows why that is. March 20th. I guess we could speculate on like anything from production issues to just, I think random scheduling issues i mean i don't know how networks work or i think works, ethan but... hawk probably heard the first episode where i uh <laughs> talk shit about him and then he decided that we need to make some changes directly addressing the podcast i also i hope this makes it into the ed i want to officially apologize to ethan hawk <laughs> for shit talking him i do think he is a, a handsome actor obviously he's made a lot more accomplishments than me so yeah that's true sorry maybe maybe they're doing like the full irishman treatment on him now oh shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> giving him the full irish one random podcaster said i looked ugly fucking fix my face in cgi please yeah i don't know it's got star power true that being said since we are without an episode to reference i think the best thing that we could do and what we decided that we would talk about is just give a little context to where um what was happening historically around um, Kansas and John Brown at that point to kind of set the tone, give you a little historical context where good Lord bird, I assume it picks up given that they are going to follow the book. Um, oh it, it would pick up shortly before the, uh, Potawatomi massacre. So <laughs> sorry, this is me pouring in a <laughs> glass of wine for myself. That's good. I didn't mean to do it so close to the mic. It's just, I'm on a really short leash, leash with my headphones here. Yeah, totally. There's a lot to talk about, um, and whether you've listened to our first episode or not, just a full disclaimer, not a historian, just a hobbyist. So we're, we're going to talk about stuff. We're and, hobbyists. Is that we, what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I mean, me specifically, because I'm the history guy, so I feel like I need okay. to give a bigger disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're hobbyists at this, and so we're going to jump into it. Um, it's not going to be... Um, don't reference us in your papers, okay? Treat us like Wikipedia, but worse. <laughs> okay. Less so reliable. I think what's what's important to remember about what's happening um, in America before the good Lord Bird picks up would be that uh, there's a lot of social unrest um, in small pockets regarding uh, the issue of slavery. Um, I think the North and the South have divided opinions. Uh, the South has a large economy that's based on slavery. It's definitely part of the culture there. Um, but there's not a lot of people. It's it's like an activist movement that is raising some alarms, making their voice known through print, uh, through maybe like some social groups um, about the evils of slavery. And even, I say evils of slavery, but not all abolitionists had the same goal. You know, there's, uh, just to call right. someone an abolitionist, I think is... It's a blanket term, obviously, but 
all these people had their own ideas of um, why slavery should end. And mm-hmm. most of them are still pretty fucking racist. Yeah. And that's so, what made uh, John Brown so unique is yeah. because he was like a tried and true, not tried, but a true yeah. like equal rights activist. Yeah. Actually and, didn't have any like gray areas about it. It was pretty black and white, no pun intended for him. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, the noblest thing about him. Because, you know, he's a conflicted character. We're going to get into that. But um, he was raised, his father, um, Owen, was... He was uh, someone that really. I was about to use the word equalist, and I'm like, I don't think equalist. Did I just coin that? Does that exist? I don't know. Writing that one down. Yeah. Um, But he was someone that, um, through religious teaching um, and his his lens of the world, believed that people were equal. Um, Mm -hmm. He has this view of of the world where um, things are predetermined, and that's how. Which, you know, uh, we could well, we could chop up a million different ways, but that's just how we thought. Yeah, um, well, I mean, at one point, he literally said that he was chosen by God to do this, uh, to go on this great quest of equalizing. Yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, his contemporaries um, were advocating for abolition uh, in, in some circles, uh, but what makes John Brown unique is that he was very inspired by slave revolts of the time so there's a couple of scenarios of slave revolts that he actually studied um wondering why they happened um how they happened why they failed um and so this concept of a slave revolt was not a new idea at the time Mm. um it's what informed his opinions that that culminated at the Harper's Ferry raid um, that was destined to fail but um these slave revolts basically based on the idea that there are enough slaves um that if you could unify this message and you could um inspire and communicate in a way to all these disparate groups of slaves that were on their various plantations or or -hmm. what have you that there was enough power there that's like hey there's there's more of us than there are them right and so even if we lack uh um, we lack maybe firepower if we can unite around this cause Mm -hmm. we can we can cause radical change which is something that um especially in the south white southerners were very afraid of i mean it was a concept well known like Mm -hmm. um which is why slaves were kept um uneducated kept in the state that they were um which is dreadful and awful um but there's reasons that that power dynamic existed like that and it was it was to keep power you know Mm -hmm. so john brown was very inspired by these notions um and wondering his whole life how he could maybe use that that idea to um, start a revolution. Yeah, it's kind of a, uh, as we were doing some research earlier, it seems like kind of an, uh, an old idea that wouldn't really work today, um, where it's just all, all you need is like the right amount of men and like some yeah. guns, whereas right. like now it's a, a drone fight essentially. But <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but, like back then, it's like the the potential for like causing like a large scale revolt like that was very possible. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it, you know, if you could be, if you could spread the message, if you could be, you know, unite these forces somehow, that that was the key, and that was what John Brown's, um, what John Brown really focused after he left Kansas was basically raising arms, trying to raise money, trying to spread this idea and gain supporters to do it. Because if you do it, you got to do it real fucking big you know mm-hmm. um and and you know it got him hung but yeah. uh 
more power to them. That's awesome. So that all being said, uh, basically what happens is as new states are being created, as the West is being colonized, um, there's these... uh, there are Northerners that are calling for new states to be free states. There are Southerners that don't want to sway the balance of power anymore towards towards that notion. So you have this power struggle sort of developing on a national level. And then comes along this, this uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, basically saying that... They declared uh, the two territories for Kansas and Nebraska and then popular sovereignty... So yeah. then they got to decide amongst themselves if they wanted to be exactly. slave states or free states. Yeah. And so like in, in theory, you're like, oh, popular sovereignty, that's a great idea. But what mm-hmm. happens is, and, and how this bleeding Kansas conflict develops over the course of a few years is that um, Kansas and Missouri sat right next to each other. They're divided by a single border. And you have Missourians, which were um, uh, by and large uh, slavers, invading Kansas to vote in elections uh, and to sway elections or sway votes towards um, slave states where you have people from the East moving to Kansas to populate Kansas for a free state. So that's where the conflict arises. So you have these governments being set up by, um, by Missourians really that are sort of sabotaging uh, the process and conflict arises. So, Mm -hmm. John Brown's sons, like five of his sons, moved to Kansas to be part of the people that are populating the state for free state reasons. My impression was, uh, and just our quick recount of that, is that when popular sovereignty was established in those two states, that they left Virginia? I, they moved around a lot, yeah. I, I, and his family was spread out. But, I think they moved from Ohio, though. Don't quote me on that. But the idea was that his sons moved to Kansas strictly to, like... I don't know, it, it seemed like um, up their chances of like voting down slavery in yeah, the state. Exactly. Just like a lot of abolitionists migrating there to just like hope, yeah. like trying to establish it as a Yeah, state. and when they moved, it wasn't, it wasn't based off of violent ideas. Um, I think accounts that I've read, like they showed up with like a handful of guns. Um, so they didn't mm-hmm. come armed to the gills to try to throw down. They were really just trying to um, set up homesteads. And, and the Brown family, John Brown included, and his sons and daughters, had moved around the eastern part of the United States quite a bit from Virginia to Ohio to Massachusetts. So, you know, there was there, a surprising amount of um, being on the road and um, and setting up homesteads in different places. And John Brown before that had worked in several things, one being a land surveyor. He was a tanner, uh, which was probably what he was the best at. Uh, he was very um, skilled in um, sheep and wool. Uh, skilled, that, skilled, in quotes. Skilled in wool. Well, it may, may be skilled in the actual craft of, of wool, but not a very good businessman. Not a good businessman. And that was something that, honestly, like I wasn't aware of until I was doing deeper research. That's not something that's covered. Um, the right. enormous amount of debt that John Brown had accumulated over the years. Well, if you just look at his like business track alone, he seems like kind of an idiot. Like He doesn't do well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. But Poor I, guy. with a good heart, I think he, one of the reasons is that he doesn't fluctuate with the market. Mm-hmm. So like in things like selling wool, you know, there's a market that um, prices go up, prices go down. And mm-hmm. and John Brown refused to fluctuate with the market. So like when things were down, he was like, no, nah, my wool is worth 
whatever, right. I, you know, I'm not going to throw out a number, but, and so he would accumulate all this, all, all these goods and not be selling them. And it's like, well, right. That's not how capitalism works. Right. Well, you said he didn't, he was not a fan of capitalism. Fan. So that kind of inherently makes you a bad businessman. Yeah. It's or not. it can. Yeah. He was really good at getting investors, which is what mm -hmm. got him in trouble. So yeah. he was, he was really good at finding people that were, um, believed him to be an honorable man and i think that his motives were honorable mm -hmm. but just a bad businessman obviously we're not talking about john brown the tanner though. right not right. what he's famous for right <laughs> <laughs> so um no 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 the the tanner the tanner john brown tan you know not the abolitionist the tanner so his sons moved to kansas and they get here and actually do very poorly initially um they're very sick when they arrive um, they're not great at establishing themselves, which is around the community of Osawatomie, which is probably like an hour south of where we're at here in Lawrence, Kansas. Mm -hmm. Um, it's in Eastern Kansas. Um, they, one of the great records about, um, where historians learn about John Brown is through a lot of correspondence between him and his family. Um, so there's a lot of direct firsthand, uh, accounts of this stuff that are readily available. Um, but basically they write to him to tell him it's not going well. Um, and we sense that things are getting tense around here. And I think violence is a brewing. So they write to, <laughs> they write to John and they're like, we need guns. Um, we need some ammo. We need firepower and we need some help. So, mm -hmm. um, John Brown swoops in, swoops in. And by swoop, I mean, he has a weird journey to Kansas. <laughs> So there's like a passage in this book. One of the books that I reference a lot and just like my personal reading is um, this book called John Brown Abolitionist. It's by David S. Reynolds. It's really good. It's it's really dense, but man, is it a good historical account of John Brown's life. John Brown comes to Kansas and all along the way, one of the weirder things that happened, I mean, it's hard traveling in those times. Um, food is scarce. They're like shooting food and shooting animals to eat like along the way. Uh, people get pretty sick. Shoot he food. stops in Missouri and um, along the way his uh, while his sons were traveling here John Brown's grandson dies yeah. and uh, he digs up his grandson and brings him to Kansas with him along along with him to bury him with his family that have arrived in Kansas which is mm -hmm. just like wow that's heavy yeah and I don't know like that seems radical to me maybe that's less radical in the context of of the time but ooh. yeah I mean digging up any body that's been <laughs> yeah. in the ground for any amount yeah. of time seems a little yeah. seems a little metal for me yeah it's hardcore so John Brown gets to Kansas he's been radicalized um, we should uh, briefly mention that like in the overall history of John Brown, like when he actually gets to Kansas and a lot of kind of what John Brown is famous for starts to go down that he's old. Yeah. He's point. an older fellow at this yeah. time. I mean, he's lived a full life up until this point. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how old he is. I, I should know. I could probably do the math on it, but I think, I think he's in his sixties, early sixties. I think the, I believe what I uh, watched earlier is that he died when he was 59. He was um, referred to a lot in Kansas when he was going on his tears as old Brown. Yeah. Um, That's 59 is uh, 1800s old. Yeah. Yeah. For super sure. old. For sure. There's, there's a few incidents that causes John Brown to really become radicalized and put a lot of his ideas into motion. You know, the idea of even bringing 
ammunition and guns with the idea that they're going to start using them in Kansas is um, the murder or martyr of this uh, publisher, this abolitionist publisher, um, Lovejoy. And so basically he is killed by this slaver mob for putting out, you know, perceived radical propaganda for abolition. Um, And at that moment is when John Brown, he hears about that and uh, he flips and uh, in a church service where he learned about it, he basically dedicates his life to um, ending slavery. He makes a proclamation. I don't know the exact context of like the declaration, but like in my head, it's kind of funny where just in a, because it doesn't really, at least like what we've looked at, doesn't really specify like what church service it actually was. Was it Mm. like... Was it Lovejoy's funeral or is it just like church that next no, Sunday? No, it wasn't. But it's just like the the way I imagine it in my head is just like a normal Sunday church service and John no. Brown is in the back, stands up. <laughs> it's like, I, I I have an announcement, everyone. Please, uh, please pay attention. And he says, here before God in the presence of these witnesses from this time, I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. Yeah. What and would you do in that situation if someone... Like tri- if you were in a crowd? Well, just like, you know, normal church, like Sunday, uh, Sunday morning church, you know, you're, well, you're singing your hymns and Mr. Brown stands up in the back and is uh, shouting how he's going to destroy slavery. That's true. But I think for a little more context on, on John, he was a sort of a very big community activist. He was a huge part of the communities that he went to. He formed communities, he formed churches. So he was definitely um someone that people were looking to within oh. communities at the time as like a figure so it was john brown's church it was the church of john brown when, when he stood up and said that i'm not sure made I'm, sense i'm sure there are people listening that are fucking furious right now yeah. <laughs> that do <know. laughs> yeah but and i'm sorry to those people but yeah I, I think that he was someone that within his community circles was looked at and respected i mean he had been part of um, forming several communities, surveying the land for communities, um, putting together schools, doing education in his house. Um, so he was someone that was, because of his his religious lens, was also very focused on community building. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was pretty respected in that way. So I think they probably looked at him cool. like, oh, shit. Cool. John is mad. <laughs> John just flipped. So... Yeah. <laughs> And really, that's kind of what happened is like, you know, he's finally inspired, like he's been very active on the Underground Railroad and all the communities that he's lived in. He's been um, during that time helping slaves become free, you know, at a a, probably a very high risk. Mm -hmm. So he brings some guns. He brings a little bit of uh, a little bit of food with him to Kansas. And he basically finds a pretty sorry state of what his family is in. So. Um, he starts nursing them to health. He starts basically helping them establish themselves and they have a real hard winter and, um, and basically make it through on the other side. And that's when things start to get pretty hairy Mm -hmm. Um, because you have a lot of violence erupting between these free state Kansans that have established themselves in the Kansas territory and Missourians that are coming across the border. And it's basically this guerrilla war going back and forth, which, you know, is sort of, you could, by today's definition, both sides were like terrorists. They were terrorizing each other. Um, I think it's pretty clear in the historical account that by and large, Missourians were the provocateurs that were doing a large amount of the, um, the killing they were doing, Mm -hmm. you know, they were killing, they were pillaging. Right. 
they were raising some hell and right. definitely the held perspective of most Kansans. That's true. I mean, we are Kansans and that's the, that's definitely the way the Kansans perceive it. I agree with what you're saying. Just as yeah. a disclaimer to Kansans. Yeah. But uh yeah, I think that you're right in that it's generally accepted that obviously that uh they were the pro-slavery party at the time and as far as like bleeding Kansas was concerned were the people who started it. For, they were instigating quite yeah. a bit. And so there's lots of accounts of some one-off killings, some you know, disagreements and spats that turned into bloodshed and then some outright, you know, major hostility. So you have um, this raid of Lawrence, uh, which in 1856, um, basically this band of, there's a couple different times in Lawrence, our hometown, where we're currently recording this. LFK. LFK, baby, Lawrence fucking Kansas. Mm -hmm. uh, Lawrence is raided by uh, border ruffians and and destroyed. And so the first time that happens is 1856. Um, the town is burned, and news very quickly travels to John Brown, which is uh, just a little bit south of here. He had established this little community called Brown Station with his family uh, just outside of Oswatomie. And uh, he's incensed. And honestly, it sounds like he didn't think a lot of the free staters at that time because they were kind of getting their asses kicked and kind of letting themselves get their asses kicked. Um, mm -hmm. So he's mad and he's ready for revenge. The very mm -hmm. next day in the Senate, um, you have a pretty unique situation happen that um, even by today's highly um, vicious political standards is pretty brutal. Um, and you have the Senator Brooks basically um, assaulting, totally beating down a promoter of free state causes, uh, Sumner, beats him to a bloody pulp with a cane in the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, so it's vicious too. I mean, it's really bad. Um, yeah. It's not like a whack on the head. It's like a full-on bludgeoning. And right. so word of this travels really fast to Brown. You want to talk about flipping out, that's when shit really hits the fan with the Brown clan. The Brown clan. And that's basically when uh, the Good Lord Bird book picks up. So I don't know what Showtime's going to do and exactly where um, our story is going to start there. You know, screen adaptations can take many forms, but that's really where, mm -hmm. the, where, the, where the book picks up. Um, and so there's a couple of incidents that we can touch on really quickly here, but it, that's really kind of sets the stage for you as to what inspired John Brown to be in Kansas, sort of the history around it. And um, what really mm -hmm. radicalized this dude? I think people who live in Kansas and have like a brief understanding of who John Brown is, they don't really know the context surrounding like his pre-Kansas life. So I think it's right. important to like talk about this guy had a lot of stuff going on uh, leading up to his motivation to come to Kansas and actually yeah. throw, throw down. It's not like he lived in, in Kansas his whole life. He kind of came to Kansas with the intention of like, I'm going to fuck some shit up here. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's hard with history. And this isn't even that long ago, honestly. You know, mm -hmm. when you start really talking about dates, mm -hmm. you know, it's all relative, but really not that long ago. Um, but with historical figures, they end up being defined by a few incidents in their life, so they become pretty one-dimensional. And it's mm -hmm. important, you know, the more context you can give these people. They were real people that lived real lives mm -hmm. um, that are hard to define uh, by just a few incidents though, you know, when you start killing people with swords, you're going to get a name for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Dude, so. I'm looking at this, uh, I guess it's a painting of like right before John Brown's execution. His hair is yeah. so cool. It's so cool. 
Like he's so great, and I love that he's even in his final moments, like you know, like that painting depicts, like basically him uh, staying true to himself and um, reaching out. So there's like a African American woman like holding mm-hmm. her baby up to him, which mm-hmm. he's like embracing the baby. I should and, find out more about this painting. Actually. I'm sure that's sort of like a fictionalization of of what happened, but I sure. think it speaks to this humanitarian that um, he was did some horrible um, some horrible things, and I think it's hard to ever condone murder. Though I would say, like in the grand scale of rationalizing murder, when you're like, yeah, but it's against slavery, you're like, okay, yeah, oh, okay, he that's uh, pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, he. Uh, like the, I believe like the morning of his execution said that he, he didn't think that this problem would ever be solved without bloodshed. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but yeah, In which he definitely thought that like, uh, this was a cause worth fighting for and definitely like obviously killing for. Yeah. And, and which leads, I think by, by most historians account is a pretty direct precursor to the civil war. And even some, you know, bleeding Kansas itself was, um, the, Battle of Blackjack was some of the first, which John Brown um, was involved in, was probably the first shots fired, arguably, of the Civil War, um, which starts a few years later. Um, mm-hmm. But the the Raid of Harper's Ferry is, um, I think, you know, really catapulted him from semi-famous at that time to uh, a national martyr. Uh, and a lot of people... Um, even even free staters and abolitionists at that time sort of distanced themselves from him, but he was the scourge of the South, um, mm-hmm. and in his time was a conflicted person. So yeah, it's fun to talk about him. I really want to watch this show. I know, really, really bad. I think we're on the cusp of that. I was talking to a friend of mine because uh, my friend Raul, who lives in San Francisco, uh, yeah. he's really interested in watching this show and actually following the podcast. So he's going to be a big fan. Unless I think, but what up, Raul? He he was. Uh, we were talking about like how, like, there's no information about uh, when it's coming out, at least from the official sh- uh, Showtime channels. And he was looking through like the Showtime's website, and he said that it looked like TV content from like a parallel dimension because he didn't recognize <laughs> any of the stuff. And <laughs> like Showtime doesn't put any effort into promoting their shows, I guess, to an external audience. Yeah. Like you need, just need to be like on the on showtimes how did we even know this was the show was getting made honestly (laughs) (laughs) like all due respect showtime like i i love some of your content but it's like i just want to know when i can watch this show that's all but we just want to know i think all that being said we're pretty sure that it's going to come out in march though we don't know because they're not really giving us any information or anyone Mm -hmm. i should say so um i think our plan is now to wait it out right this has been another amazing episode of the Good Lord Bird Companion Podcast. I'm Andy White. I'm Trevor Mowry. Thank you guys for listening. Just subscribe to us on iTunes and just look for that notification because yeah. we don't know. All right, everybody. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.